Hello, good morning, August Foltestach, a playback, with me, Evelyn O'Rourke. And on the show today, anguish in the Middle East, the death of the young Irish Israeli woman, Kim Dante. The photos depict a vibrant young woman, radiant with hope and joy. Her adventurous spirit comes through. Money, 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 as Minister Michael McGrath delivers the budget. Budget 2024 is the first budget I will deliver as Minister for Finance and I have a deep sense of the responsibility that comes with it. And are you ready? Do you know all the words? But we begin this morning with the Middle East and the devastation that we've been hearing about all week in both Israel and Gaza. So many commentators, witnesses, politicians and aid workers have filled our airwaves this week. And as a listener, standing in your kitchen, listening to their accounts, it has all added up to a heartbreaking week. Here are just some of the voices that have brought this story to our radios this week, beginning with former Irish President Mary Robinson. She spoke on the news at one with Brian Dobson. And during their conversation, she responded to the news of the death of the young Irish Israeli woman, Kim Dante. Could I just begin from a human point of view? I have listened to the mother of Kim Dante wondering about her daughter. She's now found that her daughter, aged 22, uh, died at a party. You know, it, it's, these are very serious war crimes. They are not justified by what has been happening to the Palestinian people under occupation. What about the role of the international community in trying to de-escalate this? Well, I was very glad to hear uh, President Biden uh, refer to the importance in a talk with Prime Minister Netanyahu, that Israel must comply with the rules of war, international humanitarian law. And already, sadly, Israel is in serious breach of its obligations. If the ground troops go in, we must have humanitarian aid go in and also safe havens for civilians. And on the line now, former Israeli Prime Minister, the man who sent troops into Gaza in 2008. He's a long-time critic also of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Ehud Olmert, good morning. The UN says this will have devastating humanitarian consequences. I think it needs to be reminded to the United Nations that there was a devastating humanitarian thing that happened just uh, six days ago in uh, the south part of Israel by the uh, extremists of Hamas. We're trying to move the population a little bit out of the center of towns. It will be inconvenient for the people there, but they will be out of the reach of the actual military confrontation between us and the Hamas. 1,300 Israeli people were killed in that Hamas attack. Also Irishman Tom Hand, his daughter Emily... There have been 1,500 killed in Gaza so far. Where does all this killing leave you? What does a military victory look like here? Israel doesn't occupy one centimetre of Gaza anymore. Hamas started with violent actions against us. So what do you do? Had you been attacked in where you live? We tried every possible avenue and to no avail. We are trying to separate between the civilians living in Gaza from the, uh, the charity Oxfam has been working in Gaza for more than 50 years. We've been speaking to Najla Al-Shawa, who is Oxfam regional manager in Gaza. The last number of hours have been intensified airstrikes, uh, shelling from the sea, continuous. I can hear some, some of them myself this morning. The situation is very worrying. In Gaza, there are no shelters. We all live in different places. There is no place or area or part of the strip that is safe. As I mentioned to you, if you have a lower level floor, you go to it. You have a room that is surrounded by more concrete. That's your shelter. People 
also rely a lot on each other in terms of the community and also relatives. They go and stay with their, with their relatives. There's no, no other ways, really. <laughs> There's no way to go. There are no by Alan Chatter, expert on Israel and the Middle East and former Minister for Justice and Defence. Can I get your reaction, please, to, to what has happened? Well, this is Israel's 9-11. What happened on Saturday was be- is best described as a horrific, barbaric atrocity. Personally, I would have a lot of disagreements with the policies of the Netanyahu government. I've been in Israel speaking against some of those policies. But anything that that government did does not justify the barbarism of Hamas terrorists shooting dead young people at a rave. Mm. Doesn't justify Hamas as an organization that's dedicated to violence, mayhem, and to the extermination of the Israeli state. Over 700. My next guest, Gideon Levy, is a distinguished Israeli journalist, and he was referenced yesterday about a column he wrote for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz that Israel can't imprison two million Gazans without paying a cruel price. And what is the mood of ordinary Israelis today? A mixture of mourning, being traumatized, of being shocked. There is a lot of nationalism in the air. It was a barbaric attack on Israel. But this doesn't mean that Israel has now a carte blanche to do whatever it wants. They should be limited. Joined on the line from Gaza by Dr. Abdel Kader Hamad. And Dr. Hamad is there having travelled from the Royal Liverpool Hospital to perform kidney transplants. I've been coming here over the past 10 years doing four or five kidney transplants in each visit, trying to save the lives of a few people. But the irony is, I mean, they can kill thousands of people in two days. It brings me to despair, really. And of course, there'll be ongoing coverage of this developing international story across Radio 1 over the weekend. Meanwhile, back on the domestic frontier, it was a big week for politicians as Minister Michael McGrath delivered his first budget as the Minister for Finance. The Dáil Chamber, I can see, is just uh, filling up now. Thank you very much, uh, Ciarán Corla, and I welcome the opportunity to present Budget 2024 alongside my colleague, Minister Donoghue. When Minister for Finance Michael McGrath stood up in the Dáil on Tuesday to deliver the budget, people were watching out for keywords like health, housing, tax credits. Housing is undoubtedly the biggest domestic challenge we face today and remains a top priority for government. We also acknowledge there are capacity constraints in the economy and these are most obvious in the housing and the labour markets. Here Minister McGrath talks about the renter's credit. In last year's budget, the government introduced a rent tax credit to support renters and I'm pleased to be in a position to increase the value of the rent tax credit from €500 per year to €750 per year for 2024. Last year, we delivered 7,500 new-build social homes, 43% higher than the previous year. Cross-sector reaction was quick. Opposition politicians too immediately started drilling into the detail as commentators began to try to figure out what kind of budget was it. There hasn't been probably in the history of the state of finance ministers that's been able to deliver a budget and a budget this big and with billions of surpluses yet still not deal with the major crises that the state faces. Pierce Doherty, spokesman for finance for Sinn Féin, was not impressed. He joined Cormac O'Hara in the Drive Time studio that evening to give his reaction. I think everybody, every one of your listeners knows that housing and health are in a serious state of crisis. So let me deal with the renter's credit Mm -hmm. because the renter's credit will go into the pockets of landlords. If you do not ban rent increases over the next period, that is exactly what will happen. Even in rent pressure zones, the additional renter's credit is less than the price that rents are going up. 
this is going into the pockets of landlords. We've been arguing for support for renters for many, many years, and they argued against it because they said a rent credit would go into the pockets of landlords. The difference is that we would actually ban rent increase so it would stay with tenants. This government came into office three and a half years ago. Average rents have increased by €5,000 per annum since then. All of the indicators are going in the wrong direction. I'm very confident after this budget that it is very clear that this government is not the government that will solve the housing crisis. They say they're and, on and target an to complete 29,000 uh, housing units for this year. It's not enough, Cormac. The targets they have for next year in terms of public sector homes, in terms of social affordable cost rental homes, are 13,700. We argued that you need to ramp that up to 21,000 homes. That's the type of ambition, the scale, the determinations that's mm-hmm. needed. On Wednesday morning, on it says in the papers, Fiona Kelly gave us this analysis. The term something for everyone, offending no one, used in the lead editorial in today's Irish Examiner, sums up the general consensus of Budget 24. In his analysis in the Irish Times, Pat Leahy writes that, that this was a significant budget that made two substantial moves. The first of which was a huge giveaway to voters. The second, he says, was the more far-reaching policy of the creation of two funds which windfall tax will be channelled into. And RT's political correspondent Paul Cunningham had this to say to Mary Wilson on Morning Ireland. Maybe what Budget 2024 will be remembered for are those two new schemes. In his speech, Finance Minister Michael McGraw warned that the cost of pensions by the end of the decade will be seven or eight billion a year higher than what it was at the beginning of the decade. And so the concept behind the scheme is to try and sort of get a war chest together of around 100 billion euro to be able to pay for it. The second fund is smaller on infrastructure, climate and nature. It'll receive two billion a year for seven years. This would ensure that big infrastructure projects would be protected from being buffeted um, on a year-on-year basis by problems, say, in social welfare or health. I mean, mm. on the spending side, opposition are basically saying there's too much one-off spending, not enough increase in core spending, issues like child poverty and housing. But those big two schemes, I think they were pretty significant. And just a short time later, on the 9 o'clock show, Oliver Callan had this view on the budget. This annual tinkering around with the entire economy in a single day, a very quick day known as Budget Day, has come and gone. And it's all a bit befuddling. Should it be teased out over a longer period? Uh, maybe Budget Day should be Budget Year. Uh, but anyway, Michael McGrath, the Minister for Finance, the big minister, uh, his young family were in attendance, Michael McGrath and his wife, Sarah. They have seven children. All the boys are the absolute head of Michael McGrath, can I say. All looking delighted. Well, they got a day off school. And of course, Pascal made sure he kept some of the news back because he's now the lesser minister for finance. The good stuff like the childcare thing, the extra moolah for the babas because I'm the happy in your nappy minister. So there you go. That's budget day done and dusted for another day. Other headline topics too this week included RTE's return to Leinster House. Now, RT executives are appearing before the Dáil Public Accounts Committee. During the grilling, RT said that it will become insolvent by early spring if government does not provide additional funding. Verona Murphy was the first TD to examine the RT representatives there in the last couple of minutes and she was asking about the current financial situation at the organisation. Do you believe it will be insolvent this time next year? Not if we get the funding that's been uh, suggested and if we make significant cuts to our spend. So can I ask when... Is your cut-off point for receiving that funding? We need it by sort of early spring next year. And if you don't get it, do you believe RT will be insolvent? Yes, and I've made that point. Reporter Jack Corgan-Jones from the Irish Times was on site and spoke to Claire Byrne during the hearings to give her an update. Right, so very stark warning there about the financial situation at RTE, Jack. Very much so. There's no getting around it. Uh, He has 
said that by the time next spring rolls around, the broadcaster will effectively be insolvent unless it gets a bailout from, from the government, the, the larger amount that has been recommended by New Era. And RT needs $61 million, of which the Exchequer should stump up $40 million. Now, what's interesting is Kevin Backhurst said there that he effectively has been led to, to understand that that money will come before that kind of crunch point. But the government has given no such explicit undertaking. So what have they offered? Is it enough to convince the government, you know, there is now going to be, it seems, a voluntary redundancy scheme, a hiring freeze? But, I mean, none of those are fundamental structural reform. And also, Kevin Backhurst said those measures that he's already taken, so the recruitment for and ending discretionary spending, that that had saved several million. Several million to me suggests, you know, single digit millions. Not to be corrected on this if it's not the case, but if they were achieving fundamental savings here, they would have indicated that as opposed to just saying several million. Right. I think it's time to take a little break. Arashigal Nomad. Back in a minute. Are you ready for this? Bon retour. Welcome back in French, because this weekend you know it's all about Paris, as the Irish rugby team face New Zealand in the quarterfinals of the Rugby World Cup. Sexton has it now. Last Saturday, Ireland triumphed over Scotland, as celebrated with this report on Morning Ireland. Centre of the line out, moved back and field. Jemison Gibson Park was a, an outside half. Back with Sexton. Sexton has it out to Bundy. Bundy comes forward with that one in towards Gary Ringrose. Pops it across inside the 22. Hugh Keenan for the corner. Hugh Keenan for the try. And Scotland have been torn apart. Not even Hadrian's Wall would have stopped Ireland on that occasion. And it's Ireland now with their foot on the throat of the Scottish team. Swept in, Jack Crowley has control of this one. Crossfield kick, near side of the pitch. Taken on the near side of the pitch and a try for Ireland on this near side. And it's Gary Ringrose with the try. Well, it's big boys rugby from next week on. It was big boys rugby from tonight. As Ireland have beaten Scotland by six tries to two, 36 points to 14. The tens of thousands of Irish people who are here at the start of the France. And as always, we uh, fade out from here, I'll tell you, with exhaustion. And we give way for a brief few moments to uh, Dolores O'Reilly and the Grand Prix. Yeah, lovely stuff. What a win as well. Thanks to Barry O'Neill for putting that together for us this morning. But that was last Saturday's match. What about this upcoming fixture? Well, it seems that whatever about the tactics on the field... It's the fans off the field who are our not-so-secret weapons. Sport on RTE Radio 1. And with us now is Des Cahill. Morning, Des. Good morning to Rachel. Lots of sport happening, obviously, but the New Zealand match just looms so large. A clearly enthusiastic, revved-up Des Cahill explained more on Thursday's Morning Ireland. This is probably the best weekend of the World Cup because four quarterfinals. But... Interestingly, the massive Irish support has become a big talking point at the World Cup. Their impact hasn't been lost on the players, as we heard yesterday from both Tygburn and Hugo Keenan. They've come out in massive numbers. The last two games have been really special. and They were also there in Bordeaux and Nantes and coming out to see, the, see a green 
always lifts you. I think they've definitely helped us at times in those games and hopefully it'll be the same this weekend. Completely agree. I'm loving it, to be honest. Uh, it's class to watch. Standing in the stadium after the last couple of wins, you kind of have to take a moment to enjoy it. And then, you know, we've been probably sending each other some videos of some funny videos of fans on the streets and stuff enjoying themselves and, and like that's what it's all about for us we want to get the people back home and the people who are traveling excited to watch us excited to to be here and you know be hopeful i suppose they might be getting ahead of ourselves we have to keep ourselves grounded but i think that's what it's all about it's, it's about the irish fans for sure yeah. Zombie hopefully will be hearing you again after the match on, on Saturday. Des also spoke to former England Rugby World Cup player Will Greenwood just to make sure that we get it. It's going well. Despite the strength of the New Zealand team, let's hear why the Irish are fancied by so many neutrals. England World Cup winner Will Greenwood couldn't be more positive about Ireland and his former teammate Andy Farrell. Ireland have been the best team in the tournament by a street. A magnificent demolition in Scotland. You just go, no matter what New Zealand pull out on a Saturday, Ireland will find a way to counterpunch, to absorb the pressure. This is New Zealand we're talking about. This is Ireland we're talking about. We haven't been past the quarterfinal ever. This is New Zealand who've got three trophies behind them and won it in 11 and 15. Ireland to win, Sexton to roll on. Andy Farrell, it's the sort of bloke you want in charge, right? I'll follow him. And they all are. It's it's an unbelievable story that's unfolding in Ireland. I'm just really glad I like that cranberry song because we're going to hear it again I reckon, on Saturday night. Oh, he's making me positive. He's getting us into yeah. trouble there. I know. And rugby sports chats were spilling onto the airwaves everywhere this week. Even Derek Mooney got bitten by the bug. Now, why are we talking about the rugby? Well, it has to do with all of the fans returning and what they might be bringing back with them in the form of bedbugs. Bedbugs are the souvenir from Paris that nobody wants. And they made it on to Mooney Goes Wild, where our Orty colleague Katrina McFadden recalled a trip that she took years ago. You'll be scratching by the end of this. You've invited me in today to make the nation itch, I know. So <laughs> so a few years ago, I went off on a round-the-world trip. And so I was on a budget, so I was staying in kind of youth hostels. And you learn fairly quickly not to book ahead because the place might have bed books. So a few telltale signs. Often if you arrived at a place and you saw that people's rucksacks and belongings and everything were all out on the front lawn in the sunlight, that was a telltale sign. People were trying to get the bed bugs out of their backpacks, out of their belongings, and so they'd put them in the sunlight. In the, but you could also check the mattress. It looks like black mould, but it's actually bed bug feces. Then I went to Thailand. And on the very final night, I thought, you know, I'll splurge. I'll stay in a nice place on the last night before I go to the airport. With my now husband, then boyfriend, wood panelling, wooden ceilings, wooden floors. Wasn't thinking that bed bugs love wood. <laughs> it was just they love places they can hide out. They oh, love no. creases and mattresses. Oh, they love nooks and crannies. The next morning, got up, went to the airport, and all of a sudden... I start to itch and then he starts to itch well, and <laughs> now, we weren't engaged at this stage this was a make or break moment in our relationship <laughs> there was nothing attractive about what was happening and we start tearing at ourselves and we watch the bites come up you can see they're in little lines so they they call it breakfast lunch and dinner so the bed bug will come and they'll bite you scurry down your skin another few oh millimetres and they'll God. bite you again of course the minute we got back into the airport we were googling so when we got back to Dublin <laughs> We stripped off down to our pants, left our rucksacks, everything else at the door and everything went into a boil wash. But a top tip for people is keep your suitcases and your backpacks and your bags zipped. Yuck. Anyway, 
Moving on, and quickly, says you, well, on Wednesday morning, the two hosts of the wildly successful podcast, I'm Grandman, Kevin and PJ, they bounded into Oliver Callan's studio at nine o'clock in the morning. They explained that in their weekly podcast, they navigate their way through gay London. They made Oliver crack up with their brutally honest and charming stories about coming out to their parents years ago. But you also have the most compelling unbelievable, bizarre and beautiful coming out stories. Mm-hmm. Absolutely roared laughing, by the way. As all tragedies. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> These are absolutely hysterical. And I suspect the lads are from Cork. I was in the class at the time and I had no intention of coming out. I was like, I'm a good actor. I'll get away with it for like the rest of my life. I won't tell anyone. For PJ, that opportunity came when he was in London and he got the dreaded phone call to come home and go straight to the hospital to his dad. I was in the hospital and they were like, go in and say goodbye, hearing's the last thing to go. And I went in and I was like... On your own? Yeah, I started talking to him randomly, just about random stuff. And then I could feel like it bubbling up inside me. I was like, oh, you need to tell him you're gay. And I was like, no, I'm supposed to be telling anyone you're gay. And then I was just like, oh, dad, I'm gay. But obviously he was in a coma, so he didn't say anything back to me. Like he wasn't going to pop up and be like, let's go to drag brunch. You know what I mean? <laughs> so then I was just like, I'm gay. And it, it was like a big weight off my shoulder. And he was the first person I told. The first time you said it out loud? Yeah, first time I said it like out loud to somebody. Well, I think I whispered it to my dog, Rocky, when I took him on a walk one day. But like, <laughs> the dog, ran the away. dog didn't run away. <laughs> uh, listeners, if you're listening and you're thinking of coming out, don't do it when someone's driving a moving vehicle because my sister nearly crashed the car in the roundabout by yeah. Cox to the airport. That's really good advice. Yeah. Really I good. came out to my mum in the car and we were coming down Donnybrook Hill in Cork and she swerved into the side and she was like, what? Full yeah. swerve. Yeah. Full swerve. Very, very dangerous. On New Year's Eve? I came out on New Year's Eve because I was like, you know, new year, new me kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, again, once I came out then, there wasn't as much shame about showing that mm. side of myself, you know. I felt like I was like, well, sure everyone knows now, what do I have to lose kind of thing. I don't think you become a completely different person, but there's definitely a weight off your shoulders and you feel lighter. For Kevin, New Year's resolution, new year, new you. I was planning on telling my dad and then she had asked me not to tell my dad because... Okay. He was off work for Christmas and she said yeah. it would be a bit awkward for the two weeks. <laughs> right. Okay. You know, because he didn't have anything to be busying himself with. So when he went back to work two weeks later, literally that Monday, I came home and my mum was like, well, are you going to tell your dad or what? I was kind of crying because I was talking to her about it. And next thing I heard the key in the door. There was just so much emotions happening around yeah, that yeah. time. You know what I mean? And I was like, I headed for the biscuit cupboard and just threw my head <laughs> into the safest it. place. Yeah. Safest place in, in, in an Irish domestic and you can setting. Get a really treat. I was like, Where, where's the Café Noir? Where, <laughs> where are the custard where are the creams? Bourbons? He was like, what's wrong with you there? And I popped my head out and he saw it. Like, my cheeks were red and... And I, I told him and it was it was just like a lot. I think like 10 minutes later and he broke down crying and he kind of put his arms around me and he kind of said that, you know, he still loved so me and the rest of it. Like it gets us laughing and then you have that mm. yeah. really amazing moment. The peaks and troughs. Your dad has one of the best reactions ever. And like from then he just became, yeah, like my biggest supporter. And so my dad actually sadly passed away last year as well. But in all that time, like in anything to do with the podcast and he was so all good. the rest of it. He was having us sell totes at our last live show. Like, yeah, he was selling the bag. He was taking yeah. pic- yeah, taking pickies with all work, the girlies. Like, yeah. I used That's to finish the show, you know, and I'd be on such a buzz and such a high after coming off after doing a live gig. And my dad would try to sit me down with and this like makeshift like Excel <laughs> spreadsheet that he'd done in his notebook. And he's going, right. And then he'd be talking to me about deals and stuff. Yeah, he'd be like, you should do a deal now, next show. And then, and then can be like, I just want to like decompress after the show, Dad. You know, you know what I mean? It's fine. Don't <laughs> that... be stressing about it. From Oliver on Wednesday. And the theme of families and the profound effect that they have on your life cropped up on other shows this week too. You're here, you're helping us with our mental health. But today is a bit different. 
and today we're going to talk about you a little bit. On Saturday, Brendan O'Connor turned the tables on the renowned clinical psychologist Tony Bates, where this time Tony was talking about himself, his own childhood and how a devastating diagnosis impacted him and his family relationships growing up and how he was lost for a while. I was hospitalised with the same illness, which was measles and secondary encephalitis. And I was in Cork. I was in the fever hospital. My mum was very kindly spoken to by a doctor who said, look, you've just had one son die. You don't need to see another one go through this. So why don't you just go back to Dublin and keep a check on the paper? Uh, we'll publish his death when it happens. Or if you can get to a phone, ring us. And, you know, she did what she was told because, you know, I suppose women did in those days, particularly when men in white coats gave advice. I was given four days, but I, I lived four weeks. I mean, I, I'm still alive, actually. But, <laughs> uh, and she came to see me a week later with my dad. But the nurse asked her not to because when she left, I was so upset. And the whole thing was, you know, just unfortunate because whatever, you know, about getting a near death illness at that age, I think had she been supported to be there, I would have come through that experience probably OK. And in truth, I needed some kind of help. There's no doubt. But I... I walked out of my life then and just I went off to Glendalough in the winter with no money, no food, no nothing and broke into a clubhouse, stayed there, wandered and had a kind of epiphany. It's at that edge of pain. People often discover very simple truths that become totally life giving for them. And I was wandering around Glendalough on the third day. I know, I know. It's, it's, it's sort of the, the, the rock you rolled back the stone, roll, yeah. uh, over my unconscious rolled back. And I realised, I said to myself, you know, I need people. And that's the only solid truth I had to hold on to. I need people. And that's OK. And knowing that and saying that somehow made everything f possible. You know, suddenly what was unworkable became bearable and workable. And I hitched a lift back to Dublin and... Um, kind of picked up my life. I, you know, girlfriend at the time thought I was slightly weird and I'm sure she was very right to feel that way. But, you know, in my mind, I had some clarity about things and I went from there. And there was more heartbreaking family pain too on Liveline this week as Katie Hannan heard this extraordinary account of one foster mother's experience. OK, so I do what's called the emergency foster care. Kerry had rung the show because she was listening to a number of foster parents who'd rung in after the budget, disappointed that full payment increases for them wouldn't kick in until late next year. Now, as Leo said, the children are the most vulnerable in society. You're saying Maybe children come to you for emergency placement with no, no, no clothes? Yeah, some girls come with just a nightie on, no underwear, no nothing. They're ripped out of serious situations. I had two babies not too long ago. The parents were drunk driving, two brand new babies. Well, one was 18 months and one was only six weeks. And I had to wait until Tesco opened to buy literally everything from the nappies from baby to 18 months to all the formula and to all the clothes. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not here going for me, for me. But what I am saying is there's a certain level of care that we can give as foster carers, but we need support. Like I am doing this about four years. In the last three years, I've had 200 children. And these are, I mean, a lot Sorry, of... Sorry, say that again. Kids. You've had how many children? About 200 children in the last three years. Oh, my God. Some children come from sexual assault. Now, we have to be open with this. Some issues in the family. 
whether it's assault from a parent, whether it's assault from a sibling. If you hear of any crimes on the radio, any murders, any serious incidents on the radio, we have the children of those situations. We're the ones with the children. So realistically, we, I mean, I love the kids, absolutely love them. There's only so much you can do. More conversations about families too on Continental Rifts and how families deal with the question, where are you from? Continental Rifts is a Sunday night series where artists speak frankly. It's funny, we've known each other for so long, but I've never really asked you these really direct questions. And in this week's episode, photographer Dragny Yorsk talked to her Australian-born artist friend Barbara Knesvich. But what nationality would you identify as, apart from being Irish? Of course, I'm Irish, but I also identify as Yugoslav. Mm. And while both women now call Ireland home, as Dragon explained, her background identity is a colourful thing. Mm-hmm. I remember in 91, when Croatia became an independent country, there was a census. The census taker came into our house and he was interviewing my father and asked my father, so what are you? And my father said, I'm Croatian, religion. He said, atheist. Mm-hmm. What is your wife? Serbian Orthodox. And then he asked, what are your children? And my dad said, Yugoslav. And the guy was like, no, that's not an option. He was like, well, the country existed when they were until born. two months yeah. ago. Of course, they're Yugoslav. Like, what else can they be? So they had this huge argument. Eventually, my dad kind of shouted at the census taker, can they be Eskimos? And the guy said, okay. So he put us down. So I think my brother and myself are the only Inuit people living in yeah. Yugoslavia, the yeah. Yugoslavia. But there can be a problem with that question. Where are you really from? So this all started in 2020, I suppose, for you. Yeah. Um, you set up Black and Irish. Was it a, an Instagram page or? Yeah, so I set up as an Instagram page first. As Brianna Fitzsimons and Leon Jopp from Black and Irish dropped in to talk to Ray. I remember seeing the death of George Floyd on my screen and just really being upset by it and really frustrated and wanting to do something. What I wanted to do then was create something that had a bit of an Irish context to it. So started an Instagram account with, with two friends and just wanted to document the everyday lived experiences of black and mixed race people all over the island. With that came a, a ton of positive response. People from all over the country sharing the page and saying, wow, like I didn't know that this actually needed. And I think the Instagram page was something that moved the needle on okay, do we have racism in Ireland and does racism exist too? Okay, we know racism exists in Ireland and how are we going to deal with it? What do you say to TYers when you're invited to talk? You know, that black and Irish identity is something that's growing and that's exciting and something to be proud of. It was a really warm, engaging conversation, but Leon had strong things to say. What I would have loved to have heard when I was in that kind of age demographic would be that you can be 100% of everything that you are. I always can be 100% of everything you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But You know, because I'm half Irish, half Senegalese, I always told myself that I, I have to find somewhere to, to fit in. And How um, does that look then? So it might be like, granted, I'm a big guy. I might look scary, <laughs> you, you know, but there's no reason they like clutch a bag closer to you. And would you notice? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, oh, when I was younger, I used to walk into a shop and I'd get like a detailed security guard wherever mm-hmm. I went. They'd follow me around the shop and it was blatant. Like, you know, I used to say that I was so important that I'd walk into a shop and I'd get my own <laughs> security guard. But it was because they thought it's a young black person they might rob the shop. How did you see the world? That, that's a big question. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, yeah, I don't think it'd be therapist even here to these kind of answers. <laughs> you know, so I saw the world as something that I needed to adjust myself to. It's important that you're able to feel your full self. 
Is the where are you from? Is that a microaggression? Yeah. Where are you really from? Where are you really from? Yes. That's yeah, the microaggression. That, yeah, that, that is. The way that comes out is more so in the tone of mm. how you're asking the question. Like for me, I do like when people ask about my heritage. Yes. Or mm. People ask me where, like, where are you from? And I'm like, I'm from Tala, I'm from mm. Ireland. You know, and they're like, no, come on, where are you really from? Like that, I think is where the bone of contention is and I, I think there's many different ways that people can ask or what would you ethnicity. suggest you ask like you know what's your family's heritage yes mm-hmm. you, you, where, you know? yeah where yeah. are your family from 100% so yeah that's a better way of asking the question as heard on Ray Darcy on Tuesday we'll take a break for a minute but just leave you with this you can hum along Evelyn O'Rourke here. Now there was great excitement on the airwaves on Thursday when Daniel O'Donnell, the man himself, the real deal, not an AI generated bot, when he spoke on Liveline. And I want to go to Daniel O'Donnell now. Daniel, good afternoon. Hello Katie, how are you doing? He spoke to Katie because he had a serious point to make. Well just as a boast about all these scammers that are on I'm not a great social media person, but we have a Facebook page that usually is run by the record company. But back a number of weeks ago, Magella's mother passed away, sadly. Yeah, and I'm sorry to hear that. I know you were close to her as well, Daniel. Thank you. We announced, you know, her death. And obviously people kindly put up a lot of messages of sympathy. And then, you know, there was somebody uh, set up a Facebook page by the way that it was me replying to these people who were sending messages of sympathy. And I suppose what I would like to say is that when they sent a message of sympathy to Miguel and the family and myself, it looked like I was writing back, which I wasn't. The people that are doing scams are there at the most opportune moments. Were they asking for money or do you know what they were about? No, they weren't asking for anything other than that they were trying to engage with people and you don't know what that leads to. No matter how smart you think you are, and and I'm fair smart, (laughs) there's times you'll get caught. I remember one time getting a message from someone that they lost their phone and they needed money. Somebody that I knew, I said to Magella, such and such a person, I said, as they're needing her. She says, that's a scam. But I was all gung-ho. So don't be caught. I know everybody can't ring me, but don't answer me at all. OK, just so to people know, it'll never be you. I hate using myself as a celebrity, but I suppose that's what I am. You know, anybody that's in that category, they're not writing to be a friend of anybody. So don't get caught. But if Daniel rang Katie, does that mean they're now friends? Have they made a real connection? How will we know? Thankfully, there was a guest on Claire Byrne who can help us with this. My next guest is Philippa Perry, psychotherapist and agony aunt for The Observer magazine, has written the book you want everyone you love to read and maybe a few you don't. And Philippa joins me now. Good morning, Philippa. Good morning, Claire. Claire wanted to know about friendships and how adults can make real connections when we spend half our lives stuck to our mobile phones. This other question that you get asked by adults fairly often, how do you make friends? It's almost instinctive when you're a child, but when you're an adult, it can be difficult. When you're a child, you're sort of thrown into situations where you're with people all the time. So you don't have to think about what to say because you're just with them and you just know how you 
feel with them. And actually, children are finding it difficult now to make friends because of the lockdowns. They didn't have this natural being thrown together. Some of them were sort of isolated. But how you make friends is when you make a sort of connection with someone, just how you feel when you're with another person. And of course, we're all using social media. We're on our phones a lot more. Has that led to more isolation? The trouble with it is that it gives you just enough contact to think you're doing okay. It sort of tides you over, but it isn't proper living body to living body connection. And initially, I think parents thought this was absolutely great because they knew where their kids were. But actually, it would be much better for children to be out worrying their parents, but hanging out with their peers. Of course, it wasn't like that in the good old days, where we had to actually leave our houses for screen entertainment. Only one member of the Bulger family ever wore a uniform. And then only for three months. But it was an extraordinary three months for my older brother, Roger. Dermot Balder, the celebrated writer and storyteller, wrote a great piece for Sunday Miscellany, thanks to his brother, Roger. In 1969, 14-year-old Roger inquired at the Adelphi Cinema in Dublin about summer jobs. Within days, Roger was kitted out in a four-piece red uniform, trousers, waistcoat, jacket and hat and positioned on the stairs to direct film goers entering the 2000 plus seater cinema. Roger was doing a grown man's job and so, although a schoolboy, was paid a grown man's wage. Unfortunately, he was also given a grown man's uniform that didn't fit, especially the oversized usher's hat. As crowds spilled out onto the stairs one evening, this caused one Dublin wit to shout a warning. Don't kick that hat. There's a man underneath it. And another sibling too was the focus on Radio 1 this week as the Doc on 1 told the story of Missing Gerard, a Dubliner who had moved to Australia where he went missing 27 years ago, vanishing without trace. He was well travelled. He would have left around 1985. His sister Rita, along with the Australian police officers who had worked on the case, told their story in Tim Desmond's moving programme. My brother was getting married in July 96 and he said that he wouldn't be home again for that. We were at the wedding and a friend of his rang to say that he couldn't make contact with Ger and he would have been one of his friends from the cycling group. And he just rang to say that his phone was ringing out. Was there a problem? Was something going on? Had he moved? It it wouldn't have been a worry because Ger would only tell us after the event when he was doing anything. Like he was a 35-year-old man who'd been living in Australia for 10 years. You know, it was more kind of, is he okay? Is he sick? Had he fallen off his bike? We were just worried from an accident point of view. We waited then until the 2nd of August, which is my dad's birthday. We definitely knew that he would make contact on the 2nd of August and he didn't. And that's when we worried because he had never, ever missed my father's birthday, ever. When Rita contacted the police authorities in Sydney to report him missing, they carried out a check on his home, but no clues there. Probably the most significant thing is that there was nothing significant about the property, like there's no overturned furniture, there was nothing damaged. And we actually went and had a look in the fridge and we found some milk and we look at the expiry date of that and we can start to get a point of time. There was a two months gap between that date of that milk and the bread to when readers actually notified us. The only significant piece of evidence that they had was Jared's prized possession, an elite racing bike. So the other thing too that identified was a picture of a bicycle with Jared. 
Gerard's racing bike was not in the apartment. Sometime prior to receiving the call from Rita, that bike was found in the rear lane where Gerard lived. There are many reasons why people go missing, but one of the first things considered is whether the person has made a decision to end their own life. But Tony Hughes and Dave Byrne ruled out that possibility very early on. There was a meal prepared in the fridge and it looked like he packed his lunch for the day, so it's not a hard and fast rule, but if anyone's not in the right state of mind and they're contemplating suicide, the furthest thing probably from their mind would be preparing a meal. It just, none of it made any, any sense, you know, how they tried to determine the last day that he was seen. He had taken out three videos from the local rental and returned one of three, because he'd, he'd obviously watched that one. From the beginning of the investigation, the New South Wales Police took the approach that until they knew otherwise, they would treat the case as a potential homicide. It's always prudent to treat it as a murder investigation because then if we find something subsequent down the track, if we didn't treat it like a murder in the first instance, then we would have missed a lot of that evidence. Reed has given a DNA sample in the hope that it might help to lead to answers in the future. Well, I have the hope now that if his body was ever found, that I would be matched to him, whereas previously there was no way I could ever be connected with anything that was found in Australia. And that is hope. You know, maybe not in my lifetime, maybe in my children's lifetime, it just means that anything ever, ever comes forward. At this stage, there is agreement about Gerard Mooney's disappearance. I personally think he could have been hit by a car. Did he come across a situation that he intervened in that he shouldn't have? In my mind, it was probably one of those scenarios, you know. We do think it wasn't planned. We do think it was opportunistic. It could have been robbery. It could have been an accident. Rita is still waiting and hoping. Wherever in the world you're listening to this podcast, if you know anything about Gerard Mooney or indeed any other missing person, please tell someone in authority. Testament to the, the love she's got for Jerry. Finally then, we end with another conversation that centred on family and the influences of home life, as Ray Darcy invited Martin Hayes into studio to play some tunes on the fiddle. In between songs, they discussed Martin's dad and uncle, who have a unique place in Irish traditional music. Your dad, you're, you're standing on the, the sh- shoulders of giants. In a f- yeah, I suppose fortunate in the situation I was born into, you know, because the fiddle was in the house. My father was a very good fiddle player. My uncle was also, Paddy Canny, was also a really, really fine fiddle player. And, and your dad was one of the founders of the Tulla Cayley Band. That's right. Yeah. yeah. My brother, Hugh, was into traditional music back in the late 70s and 80s. Yeah, yeah. And he collected a few albums and one of them was All Ireland Champions, which your dad, it's credited with starting the current sort of modern wave of Irish traditional music. Yeah, like it had this distinction of being the first LP of traditional right. music that yes. was produced in Ireland. Uh-huh. And the guys thought nothing of it. You know, Paddy Kenny, my father, they didn't even have a copy. I remember that <laughs> right. copy coming into our house for the first time. And that album was made before I was born. They didn't have a copy of didn't it. Didn't even that? have a copy of it. And so they were uh, egoless in a way, were they? <laughs> yeah, well, no, they wanted to do that thing right. But the whole thing was recorded in one day in two studios. The guy who had booked them to play the album, to record the album, booked the amount of time that it takes to play an album. <laughs> and said, won't you guys just sit in there and play an album just like that? Well, no, even for them, that was a bit much. But uh, they thought that they needed the luxury of a full day at least to make an album, which they did then take. Brilliant story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Your current album is released this year. I was going through it. The whole thing was done in 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You're going to play us another 
bit of a tune. It's a tune written by a good friend of mine, Padre Rieda, and it's memory of a great old fiddle player from Galway who composed many wonderful tunes. His name was Paddy Fahey. So the tune is called The Wonder of Fahey. So, Sinead and Chocht and Chup, until next Saturday, Sloan Gafold. <laughs>